Mark your calendars! The ADCES 24 Annual Conference parades into New Orleans August 9-12, through 12, 2024. Registration opens March 26, but you can start planning your trip now. Get ready to seize opportunities to connect, learn, and optimize your diabetes care and education practice. Stay tuned for updates at ADCES24.org. Hello, and welcome to the ADCES podcast, The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. I'm Kirsten Yale, Research Manager at the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. Diabetes Care and Education Specialist Melanie Teslick joins us on today's episode to discuss the importance of addressing lipohypertrophy in your practice. Melanie has been in many management positions supporting education and performance improvement initiatives. So today, she'll share some tried and true techniques that will help you address this problem where fatty lumps that form underneath the skin affect insulin injection effectiveness. Melanie, welcome to the huddle. Hi, Kristen. Welcome. We are so happy to have you here, especially because we're talking about this topic of lipohypertrophy. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. You're going to have to catch me later on. But before we get going, you know, this conversation today really stems from a conversation we had a few weeks ago um, that was really interesting. And we got to talking about technology and how far technology has advanced diabetes care and education. But there's really still these really basic needs that we need to address with diabetes care and education. But before we really jump into that, I wanted to make sure that our listeners got a chance to hear about you and your background um, and, you know, really what drives you in this area. Well, I've been a nurse for quite a few years. Uh, won't specify number there. <laughs> and I had continued to go up the chain of command and went into administration and always, always loved diabetes and wanted to get back to it. And I had an opportunity at a point to start teaching it. And education is like one of my loves. Mm -hmm. So it was just a natural transition into diabetes because I truly believe it impacts every part of the body. It's not just diabetes alone, but it impacts every single thing in the body. Mm -hmm. And hence became a um, diabetes educator and the board certified diabetes educator. And from there, just have fallen in love and have worked in diabetes, both locally and the state level as well. Well, you've been an incredible asset to ADCES, so we truly appreciate you and, and your expertise. And I love the way you kind of describe it as a physiological approach to diabetes care and education. Would you say that? Uh, yes, because I think everyone thinks diabetes, so it's medications, it's pills, it's because the pancreas isn't working. But people forget about all the potential side effects relating to diabetes, the cardiac, the muscle, just the brain, everything is involved. It's not just the pancreas. It's every part of the body. Right. Yeah. And it's really interesting. The more and more I talk to more um, diabetes care and education specialists, it's like the whole behavioral aspect and working with people and understanding what drives people with diabetes individually in their lives seems really important. But I want to jump into this topic of lipohypertrophy. What is it and what causes it? Well, lipohypertrophy is the thickening or the swelling of a tissue around injection sites. And it actually impacts 62% of our patients. 
we keep thinking about it as uh, something that's been eradicated, but in truth, it hasn't. It continues to be an impact, even though the insulin's changed and the needle size has changed through the years. We have to focus on it because it impacts the absorption of the insulin and it often leads to glycemic variability. So 62% is really, is really high. Has that 62% remained that high over the years or has it increased or decreased? I believe it's probably stayed about the same, but how strongly it's impacted I think has changed over the years. As we have transitioned to shorter needles and to the analog insulins and the use of pens, there's been a decrease in the current, the depth of the occurrence of lipohypertrophy, though it's still occurring. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting to think about with all of this change. And that, that's where that conversation we had really stemmed from all of this change. yet still this, you know, it still remains a, a really important issue to deal with. So how can a diabetes care and education specialist assess for lipohypertrophy? Well, the best way is to palpate. And that's just basically using your fingers and checking out the sites that people are injecting and pushing in and feeling, do you feel like little bumps under the skin? When it's gone too far, you could actually see the bumps, but you really need to touch and palpate to make sure does the patient have it. And that's by first asking them, where do they inject? and where they choose to do the injection sites. We always think that we've taught people how to do it, but you always have to go back and reteach them and reevaluate how they are doing that process. And so this, you would say, is something just coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic and all of us staying at home in this lockdown and having to do telehealth. It sounds like this is something that cannot be done virtually. It's difficult to do it virtually because you can ask the patient to palpate themselves but are they going to be able to feel it or know what they're looking for is a challenge. But it's something to teach them. So then it's another way for them to be self-empowered, to look to see, are they doing it correctly? Have they developed complications because of their technique? You know, I wonder, and this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but we recently did um, an interview about creating like an emergency toolkit for if another pandemic happens, or if you're in an emergency situation like a hurricane and I wonder, this might be something to add to a toolkit, right? Yes, that would be a good thing because we know the risk factors involved with lipohypertrophy. And that's like frequent needle reuse. And I would think in an mm -hmm. emergency, that would be something people would contemplate is reusing needles if they can't get them or the injection site or just the failure to rotate the sites. And the patient's level of education and what type of insulin they're on are also impacting that. Yeah, I want to jump into the barriers, if we can talk about those. And there's traditional insulins, and then there's working with new technologies. And I know that there's a significant population of people with diabetes that just really don't even want to go to the new technologies that are really comfortable using traditional insulins. What would you say are the barriers with these traditional insulins with lipohydropathy? With uh, lipohypertrophy? Yeah, I'm not going to get this right. You know, Melody, you're going to have to teach me. <laughs> anyway, um, there's lots of barriers. Uh, first of all, there's the traditional one that people are fearful of going on insulin because in their history, they've had lots of events that have occurred. Uh, members of their family had diabetes and they're aware of the potential side effects that were caused because of the diabetes, or they remember their grandmother giving these injections with the syringe and vial and pulling it up and this whole paraphernalia that goes with it. 
where there's been so many changes in in direction and how we address the issue now. Whereas previously, going back 10 or 15 years, you were automatically giving whatever medications were available to treat the diabetes. And then when there was nothing left, you would go to insulin. And nowadays, because we know of the risk and we know that if we can control the A1C, we're delaying complications for 10 or 15 years, if ever, that by being aggressive and starting people on insulin will make a big difference. So it's re-educating people on that thought process. When they do start using insulin with a needle, what's critical for them to know so that they can avoid this? Well, the first thing just starting with insulin is often just alleviating their fears, Mm -hmm. empowering them to understand the process. Um, The favorite story is that it hurts less to give an injection than it does to do your finger stick because a lot of people know the pain on the finger stick checking their blood sugars. Mm -hmm. So they don't always believe you at first. So once you start them on the insulin, even if you start slowly and just start with a long acting insulin and then add a rapid acting maybe to the largest meal, they start feeling empowered and realize it doesn't hurt as much as they thought. Or if it does hurt, why is it hurting? Is it the technique? Is it the pH and the insulin they're giving? Is the site selection? But working with the patient to decide how can they take that insulin safely and realize how it empowers them, Mm -hmm. including the different types of insulin and the action and duration of those insulins in their system. And what kind of education do you talk initially about site selection and the injection site and those pieces? How do you introduce that? Well, first, I actually start with the basics of why they need the insulin and why their body is either not producing insulin or resistant to producing insulin. And I bring it down to very simple terms. And I think there's an example that a lot of educators use, which is the doorman at each one of our cells when we try to describe how insulin works in their system. And then you show them the needle and all of the companies have practice pens. So you can actually practice it and practice injecting into a cushion so that they're like, oh, that wasn't that hard. And once they learn the technique, it's like anything. Once you start learning something, you feel more comfortable with it. Yeah. You told me this great story the other day about the man using the eight millimeter needle and not pinching his sight. I would love for the listeners to hear about that one. Well, it was a gentleman, highly educated, who had been going to an endocrinologist who was very well known. And he, you could see he was already resistant that he knew it all. And he was doing it correctly and did not need to be re-educated. And in our practice, we always make sure that everyone's doing it correctly. We don't assume anyone, no matter what. And even if you've been on insulin for years, we all get into bad habits of doing different things. But he was very proud and he's showing me. And as he's doing it, I, I can tell. I was like, what color is the cap on your pen? And he said, it was the eight millimeter. And I was like, well, are you pinching your skin? He goes, no, I don't have to pinch my skin. And with eight millimeter needles, you do need to pinch the skin. And it's only with the four and five that you do not need to pinch the skin. And at first you could tell he didn't believe me. Um, And he was reluctant, went home, did his research because we all have the computers now. And he realized that what I had said was correct. And that had two impacts. One, it actually allowed him to trust our practice more and realize We did know what we were talking about. 
And two, it empowered him individually. Like, why am I using these long needles? And he transitioned back to four millimeter needles. I'm kind of like that guy when I go in and see my physician or their nurse or whoever, like I do all my research and I feel like I know more than them. So I can relate a little bit, but it it truly is a partnership, right? No matter how prepared we are, we as the patient come in and we bring a set of information, but then working with you know, you as the diabetes care and education specialist, you bring a different set. So it, to me, that just defines what the care model is. Okay. So this is where it got really interesting, where we started talking about new technologies, because we always think these new technologies can like fix all of our problems, but they don't really, right? No, they don't. We need to do a lot more research. Um, They're wonderful. I mean, now you're able to just scan yourself to check your blood sugar, or you can see it right there on a device, on your phone, which everyone now has their phone front and center. So it empowers you. And it also shows you where you're trending, your blood sugar is trending. So you have your continuous glucose monitors as one aspect. And they're wonderful. They're really helpful. But they're remaining under the skin for anywhere from 10 days to 14 days. So when you think of lipohypertrophy and you think you want to look at different sites, what impact is that little plastic tubing having under the skin being there for that length of time, because your body's obviously going to say this is a foreign object at some point. And now they also have one that's for three months that is actually a surgical procedure, and they put a small tubing under the skin that's reading your blood sugars. So what impact does that have on what we're talking about, lipohypertrophy in, in the long run? You also have a lot more people on pumps than we ever did. And that's wonderful. It's empowering people. And as they move forward on the pumps, they're looking you know, to have the hybrid and just hopefully a closed loop at some point. But again, you're having something under the skin for a period of time, two to three days. And what impact does that have on your body's normal reaction to a foreign object in your system? And there hasn't been enough study done on these different items. I mean, it sounds like more study is definitely needed. I guess right now, because you're faced with this every day when you're working with people with diabetes, how do you address these challenges or how do you work with people in in your office? It's always a partnership and you take people from the point they are. You always use open-ended sentences to elicit more information. And what do they want to learn? And you can't learn everything at once. Diabetes is a constant learning curve and there's always something new happening. So you always have to just pick an aspect that they're willing to focus on. So if you have the continuous glucose monitor and they kind of start seeing the trends, you can actually reflect on, okay, what did you have at lunch? And whatever that is, look what that meal had on your impact on your blood sugars. And it's like, okay, your choice is you need a little bit more insulin or you need to change your diet. And when they see that, they're like, oh, I have to change my diet. And you can start talking more specifically or look at the impact exercise has on your blood sugar. So it allows you to empower them more into making the decisions together. Yeah, I love your comment about open-ended sentences. And I struggle with that all the time, sometimes because I know what I want to hear or where I want to go. And I don't give people the opportunity to answer with just being open-ended. So that, that really takes a conscious effort. You told me another great story the other day. I think one of your clients said, like, it's just not working. Something on the site, it's just not working, the tubing. Oh, yeah. It's an individual who was wearing a pump and their blood sugars were all over the place. 
and they couldn't figure out why. And he actually had been hospitalized for DKA. So he came out and resumed his pump and the blood sugars were in the like three, four hundreds continuously. And the first thing was, oh, we'll change your site. And we start going through all the problems. And it came down to after all of this, that it was a very, very simple problem that when they resumed the pump, they set the time incorrectly to AM and PM so that he was bolusing whatever his carb ratio was at night for all his meals. Once we corrected the time, he was perfect. He was back into his normal range. And it was just like, he thought like it was the biggest miracle that ever happened. And it was just something so silly as the time was set incorrectly to AM and PM. How often does something like that happen? Um, probably more than you think. Because when you make changes on the pump, if they're doing it independently or if you're doing it over the phone or, or something like that, you always have to do a recheck and have them repeat back. And it's funny because patients, they know me and they will start laughing, go, okay, you want me to go back and read it back to you? And I was like, yes, I do. Because even though we only made one change, all they have to do is not hit the correct button or not hit the save and all of the values could be changed. So we always go back and we always laugh because they're on the phone longer with me. When we do a change, I just want to make sure that it's done correctly. And part of that too is also explain to them what we did and why we did it. So they understand, they learn more about their device. And again, it's back to empowering the patient. Absolutely. You know, and it just reminds me that these are really intricate technologies that we're using. And this is just part of it. It always seems like with technology, 99% are these like really simple fixes. And that's where that time you take to spend with someone really comes in. You know, this is interesting, just talking about the traditional methods versus the new technology methods that we're rolling out. Do you think there's ever going to be a replacement for injections? I hope so. And I think through the years, we've been promised and we keep looking for a solution. It doesn't seem to be happening, though there's many, many people working on it. Just this week at the ADA conference was released that they're working on a weekly basal insulin. So the person would only have to take one injection a week. And that just seems tremendous, like a tremendous change. It's not a cure, but it's another something to add to our toolbox that maybe that's an option for patients. Or they're working on patches, they're working on the closed loop. And it, it just seems that the information in diabetes changes so quickly now, and you have to keep up to date with it. And there's always someone that that's a good fit for. But there's always going to be people that you have to still remain on the regular injections with a mixture of different medications. Now, this weekly basal insulin sounds fantastic. I had no idea that that was coming out. Do you think that'll be on the market pretty soon? Uh, no, they're only in phase two. So we need to go through phase three, but it's exciting to just hear something new that's coming out. Yeah, it is. It's inspiring, I'll say. You know, Melanie, we are getting close to the end of our time here. So I want to make sure we fit in the last couple little things. Calls to action. You know, thinking about this topic, what are the calls for action that you would like to let our community know? Probably first and foremost, to never assume that someone knows how to do it. Always take the time to have them return, demonstrate what they're doing to you, or show you where their injection sites are, or listen to the person what their concern is. It's not always what you think they need. It's something you might hear completely different. And I think the COVID-19 crisis has made that very clear when you talk to different patients their diabetes right now, they know they need to control it, but they've also heard the news about how that is um, 
one potential complication that can occur. Mm-hmm. If you have diabetes, you're more at risk. So they're very, very anxious. There's also been, um, they either have gotten the disease or their family members or loved ones. And so it's a very difficult time. So when you sit there and talk about a diet with them, right now, it doesn't mean anything to them in the sense of they're gaining weight. You know, people are joking about the COVID-19 weight gain, 19 pounds. I have it. (laughs) So when you think of that, you can't criticize them. You could just work with them where they're at. And I think that's like probably an important lesson no matter what you're teaching in diabetes is always thinking of where there's that person and what can you do and what small goals can you make together. Along with that, always empower them with whatever they're doing so they understand how to do it. I'll make sure they're doing it correctly. Always get a return demonstration and probably utilizing our websites with the danatech.org because that's a wealth of information that you can use to help teach your patients. Yeah, danatech.org is an incredible resource and asset for our members. And I love that idea of empowering people and meeting them where they're at. I think that's something that diabetes care and education specialists use throughout their time with people with diabetes. So that is great advice. So Melanie, I've loved this conversation. I would love for you to come back sometime is maybe like next year when this new, maybe it will be through phase three and maybe this new weekly basal incident will be out or new technologies. I'd love to see how things advance. I would love to join you again. And thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. We just heard from Melanie, lipohypertrophy is an issue that continues to affect people with diabetes who inject insulin. Make sure to ask questions about injection techniques to help you identify someone who is at risk. Also, consider using teach-back method to make sure your clients understand the proper techniques and sites for insulin injection. As the DCES toolbox of technology continues to grow, it's important to stay current using resources like danatech.org, ADCES's website dedicated to diabetes technology. Remember that ADCES membership gets you free access to danatech.org, as well as plenty of other resources, education, and networking that improve your practice and optimize outcomes for your clients. Learn more about what ADCES can do for you at diabeteseducator.org forward slash join. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.